You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning on this Mother's Day Sunday. Happy Mother's Day to you. I'm thankful that my mom is here with us this weekend. And so, happy Mother. I get to say this as the pastor in this service. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I'm thankful that she's here. Uh, she was able to come uh, Friday and Saturday. So, for the Mother's Day weekend, we were able to bless her with six baseball games all across. <laughs> the metro Birmingham area, so happy Mother's Day, and uh, no, we, we've had a great weekend. Our boys, my boys, are, are blessed with Danielle as a godly, uh, awesome mom, and so as I look at Danielle and my mom, I feel real blessed to be able to be here this morning, and I know many of you have mothers that you're sitting close to. Many of you have mothers that have gone to, to be with the Lord. We, I do understand that Mother's Day is a time with, with great exuberance and celebration for many of you that are in this room, and there very well may be, because we don't live in the Garden of Eden, there very well may be disappointment and pain and those kinds of things that come at Mother's Day. Know that today, however you appropriate this holiday, that we pray God's richest blessings upon you. Uh, we are walking through James, the epistle of James. James is a strong, sturdy book. There is no denying that. We came to last week, James 1.27, that says, pure and undefiled religion is this, to care for orphans and widows in their time of need and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Uh, what does it mean to be stained from the world? What are ways that we could be stained and corrupted by the world. Well, in these 13 verses in James chapter 2, he is going to answer that question with great specificity. Now, I, I told you that I walked through, and you know this already, nine, ten months into my ministry here, I, I walk through books. I walk through sections of scripture. I, I rarely, not to say I don't ever, but I rarely pause move out of a book like James and say, let's just talk about Mother's Day. Let's just talk about Father's Day. There's nothing you know, wrong with that. It's just not my practice. And if I did that, frankly, I would not be able to get through books. And I would have to remind you, well, three weeks ago, we talked about this before Baccalaureate Sunday and before Mother's Day. So oftentimes, my practice is Mother's Day is this day. This is the passage of Scripture that we have as we walk consecutively through uh, the book, Spurgeon, uh, legend would say that on Saturday night he would be pacing Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th, 19th century British preacher. He'd be pacing his living room saying, God, what am I going to preach on? God, what am I going to preach on? Well, I know what I'm going to preach on because it's just whatever's next in the book of James here. And so this passage of Scripture isn't as sentimentally close to Mother's Day as like uh, the rest of the Bible, I guess you could say, would be. <laughs> I mean, it just, it's just not. So I was thinking, do I put, well, you know, if I punt this early in my ministry, then I'm going to get some false expectations. I just say James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, it is where God has us this morning. And this is the script that we have. But if I was to like select, these are the top 1,300 passages in Scripture to preach on Mother's Day. James wouldn't make the top 2,000, I don't think. So, or not James, but this uh, passage in particular here. So there's a principle, then there's an illustration, and then there's three subpoints in these 13 verses in James chapter 2. The principle is clearly stated in the first verse, and it is this. Faith is incompatible with favoritism. This is the clear principle. Faith is incompatible with favoritism. And he says this, my brothers, James chapter 2 verse 1, show no partiality 
as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, this isn't a suggestion to ponder. It is a command that is to shape us as believers. In the English Standard Version, on page 1011 in the Pew Bible that you have in front of you there, you could see that it says, show no partiality. Some of you have a new international version, and you would see that it says, show no favoritism. I actually think you get to the understanding of it a little quicker with the translation, show no favoritism. In the original language in the New Testament, it is a unique phrase called receiving face. Don't receive face. It, It actually is a word that was invented, it seems, by the New Testament writers. We don't don't have extant historical documents outside of the New Testament that have this word. So this word used by James and used by other New Testament writers, it is clear that what James is telling us as Christians is this. Do not make judgments about people based upon external appearance. All of us in this room just need to admit that our default position in our world, our default intuition oftentimes in our world is to do the very opposite of what James is saying. We all, by nature, not our good nature, but fallen human nature, I mean, this is just what it is, we do make judgments based upon external appearances. We do make judgments based upon first impressions. I walked up here, and many of you, you you made judgments. I mean, it's just who we are. It's who I am. So so really, we're, we're silly if we're acting like all of us don't do this, because all of us do do this. But James is saying, at our worst, these judgments are biases, and those biases turn into discrimination, and the discrimination can oftentimes be favoritism and prejudice, So James says, don't let someone's skin color, ethnicity, degrees or lack of degrees, age, their youth, or their their wealth of age that they have, their their economic prowess or their economic difficulty. Don't let their accent or what part of the country they hail from. Don't let those things be what gives you the idea of who they are. Because I've called you to crucify that old self and to walk into a new self. It is hard to read James 2, 1 without thinking of that time where the prophet Samuel comes and he comes to Jesse's house. And Saul has sinned against the Lord. There will be a new king. And he looks at all of Jesse's sons. And they all really look like they should be the king. Samuel's looking and that looks like king material. That looks like king material. But God said, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. And so Samuel has to say, well, do you have any other children? And the very one who doesn't look like he should be the king doesn't have the prestige, doesn't have the prowess, doesn't have that, that just look, that, that, that magnetism that you need to be able to persuade people. And Samuel's thinking, this one? I mean, Jesse didn't even bring David in to, as a candidate for the next king. And God has to say, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, For the Lord sees not as man sees, Lord sees not as you see, Jesse, not as you see, Samuel, but man looks on the outward appearance, 
But the Lord looks on the heart. This is the principle. Faith is incompatible with favoritism. Here's the illustration. It's in verses 2 through 4. It just illustrates, it lets some sunlight into this principle to illumine what James is saying in this section of Scripture. And this is what he says. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, or you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The story's simple. I mean, it's a simple story. We have a first century man that walks in. In the original language of the New Testament, it's, it's gold-fingered. That's the original translation of it. it it's the sense of showing off his position, showing off his wealth. In the original language of the New Testament, what seems that what is translated right here in your passage of Scripture, fine clothing, it actually is shiny clothing. He is flaunting his wealth. This is what we are to hear in this illustration. He's flaunting position. He's flaunting privilege. And in contrast, here's a person that doesn't have any of those external appearances of prestige or position or wealth. Two men walk into the same synagogue, to the same assembly. Ushers come to this person. Greeters come to this person and say, oh, we've got the best place for you to sit right here. It's the best seat in the house. And they ignore, more than ignore the person in poverty. They say, get over there or or sit at his feet there. It's demeaning. This is the contrast here. Now, this is convicting. It's convicting enough in and of itself. This illustration is clear. The principle is clear. But don't be convicted about something that James actually isn't saying in this passage here. Because some people, you read this passage and you get this cursory impression that what James is condemning is that this one person has wealth and this other person doesn't have wealth, but that's not what James is talking about here. The the purpose of the illustration is to say, here are people that are looking on the external and they're making judgments and they're ignoring and they're maligning those on the external too. So the point is, the point isn't Does this person have wealth and wealth is bad and this person doesn't have wealth and and being in poverty is good? That's not the point of the illustration. You know this, and if you don't know this, you need to know this. Your relationship to wealth does say a lot about the spiritual state of your soul. But wealth in and of itself is not a sin. Paul's writing to his protege in the ministry. His name is Timothy. And he comes, and it's helpful. Many of you know this, for the love of money, Paul says, is a root of of all kinds of evil. It is not sinful to be wealthy. It is not sinful to be rich. It is not sinful to be influential. On the other hand, it is not spiritual to be poor in and of itself. Some of the godliest people that Danielle and I know, without a shadow of a doubt, in the churches that we've had the privilege to serve in, people that we've gotten to know, some of the godliest people that we've known that have had a huge, generous hearts for God's church and what God is doing across the world have been people of tremendous wealth. And on the flip side, some of the stingiest, close, closed-hand people that maybe you know and that I know have been people not of, of great financial means. 
And on the flip side, we could say that we know people in the midst of poverty that have a tremendous love for God and those that have great financial wealth that are very far from God. So it isn't wealth condemned, poverty exalted. Rather, it's the state of a person's relationship to one's wealth. This is important to understand from this passage right here. So the principle and the illustration are making one clear point, and that point is faith is incompatible with favoritism. Now James could move on to something else. He often does this in the book of James. He makes a point, gives some little bit of, of background to it, and he moves on. He's got this, he, he's ranging over these proverbial statements, moving from one subject to the next subject, but he pauses around this theme and he does something that he doesn't often do in the rest of the book. He says, I'm going to unpack this some more. And so we have three subpoints that we discover from this passage in verse 5 through verse 13. And the first is a theological reason that faith is incompatible with favoritism. Look with me in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him? Now, I know that you who are listening this morning say, Oh, preacher got ahead of himself. Trying to, trying to clear out some ground here to talk about the distinctions of wealth. And then, and then James comes back right in the next passage and says this very thing about those who are poor in the world have been chosen by God to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Now, it's important for you to understand what James is saying and what he isn't saying. Salvation does not come through material poverty. Notice what he says. He has promised to those who love him. So this love of him is an indication of one's faith in him. But is there an advantage to one in poverty that they would turn to God in the midst of their need? In the original language of the New Testament, poor poverty can be expanded upon to mean something like this, to crouch or to cower with fear. There's a sense of holy reverence for and need for God. Often throughout the New Testament, you have a sense of poverty and poor talking spiritually about one's soul. That one can be poor in spirit, Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount. And he commends us to that kind of poverty of spirit. He commends us to this sense of understanding that you in and of yourself, with all of your wealth, with all of your degrees, with all of your ingenuity, all of the climbing to the top of whatever ever ladder you're trying to climb to, that ultimately cannot bring you into a right relationship with God. You can't buy that. You can't purchase that. You can't earn that. So there is a sense, what James is saying, those of low material means oftentimes understand their brokenness and their need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can see, this is just sociologically, this is just a truth that over the last few decades, that Christianity has often spread, often spread most favorably and with great missionary fruitfulness in Latin America and in Southeast Asia comparatively to Western Europe and also to the United States, these areas where Christianity has seen some of the greatest movements of revival are in places of little affluence compared to the great affluence 
of Western Europe and of America. So we were sending missionaries to these places, and oftentimes Christianity has been stifled within the U.S. as material means have increased. Now, this isn't, this isn't always true. So this isn't a proverb, this isn't a truth, but it is a temptation. There can be a temptation when affluence increases, self-reliance increases. So the more I have, I live under the illusion that I can fix things. I'm in charge of my destiny. I am the one who's the captain of my ship. And what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, what James is building upon here, is for us to know him and to grow in him and to trust him as Savior. There must be a brokenness where we come to our knees, we admit our poverty of spirit, we cast our cares upon him, and we say, we cannot fix this. I am a sinner. I admit this. I believe in the finished work of the gospel, and I call upon you to save me. So there is, in this passage here, a subpoint, which is a theological reason that faith is incompatible with favoritism. Now he moves to the next subpoint. Number four in this message, it, there's a logical reason that faith is incompatible with favoritism. Look with me in your copy of God's Word at verse 6 and verse 7. James says, but you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? This is going to be one of these places that when we get to heaven, we might corner James and say, James, help us with this. I mean, what, what were you talking about? Because we don't have in this book all of the details of which to flesh out exactly what James is talking about. So we have to piecemeal this together. So we know historically that with some exceptions, the Christian church was largely comprised of people of low socioeconomic means. Now, we can think of great exceptions to that, even in the New Testament witness. But culturally, this is just true, in that first century world, before Constantine, before the fourth century, Christianity largely flourished among those who were poor in that Greco-Roman world. And so James is talking about the wealthy that are abusing the poor in that world. And it very well may be that they're landowners, the rich are, who are doing things to, to enact difficult financial means. And there is this court that they're having to go to, and, and they're able to purchase the favorable verdict of a judge able to abuse the poor, many of whom might have been Christians. And James says, logically, this doesn't make sense. Why are you giving yourself to the very people, showing them favoritism to the rich when they're actually abusing you and they don't have their best interests at heart? I can't help but to think of this. One of, when I married into the, the, Danielle's family, one of their traditions in her family is around Christmas, and it's a wonderful life. And mom, I'm sure growing up I, I saw this, but every year the, the Robertson family, they, they watch on December 24th. It's a wonderful life. And I, I remember when we were in the, I probably shouldn't tell this on Mother's Day, but I will anyway. So um, I remember when we had our first child, and it was we were in the hospital on Mother's Day, and the baby, Hayden, was born on the 23rd. And the 24th, there it was on NBC. 
It's a Wonderful Life was playing, and she was settled. I mean, it's that little period where you have people helping with the baby, and you're resting, and she was there to watch the, I shouldn't tell this story, but I will anyway. I, I really, I really, I, I'm so deep into this that I don't know. I'm trying to get out of it, but I'm just going to have to go forward with it. And so she looked at me. It's like 7 o'clock in the hospital, and she's so excited about It's a Wonderful Life being on, and she looked at me, and I was sound asleep in the middle of that movie. So, um, that's supposed to be funny, but you don't, you don't think that's funny at all. You're just sad for me is what it is. You're sad for Danielle. So, Okay, so It's a Wonderful Life. The premise of the movie at the beginning was the scene where Jimmy Stewart, who's playing uh, George Bailey, comes into the town of Bedford Falls. And um, he's lived in the town of Bedford Falls for a long time. And there's one Scrooge-like villain in the movie. It's called Mr. Potter. And Mr. Potter, he has all of the assets of the town of Bedford Falls. He's got the bank. He owns it. He has all of the real estate. He owns it. And he has enacted over decades this socioeconomic cycle of poverty. And so the premise of the movie is that George Bailey, as, as the hero of the movie, stands up against this wealthy person who is enacting these things that are harming the average citizens of Bedford Falls. And so James has given us some type of scenario that's very similar to this. And then before we're able to pause and to think, well, what else is he talking about? He says, I'm, I'm going to land this message with a final biblical reason that faith is incompatible with favoritism. And he says it in verse 8, goes to verse 13. It's the most extended argument. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall do what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak, verse 12, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy and mercy triumphs over judgment. By the time you get to verse 12 and verse 13, what James is saying is, is we as Christians who have received the mercy of God, we who have received this, we should love those people that we come in contact with. We should love our neighbors, we should love our coworkers because we have received the love of God. He goes in verses 18 or verses 8 through verse 11 to extend this reasoning. He says, and if you're circling or you're underlining things in your Bible, you would come to verse 8 and you would say, What is the royal law? What is he talking about? Well, what James is drawing upon is what we know in the Gospels, you have these differing accounts of the expert of the law. In Matthew's Gospel, the expert of the law comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest of the commandments? Trying to trip Jesus up. You know, which one is he going to say? Because all of them are important, so which one is the most important? And Jesus answers with this in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. 
So James is drawing upon this tradition that ultimately starts in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. Leviticus 19, that calls you to love your neighbor. Jesus draws these things together, and he shows us a graph, a picture of what it means to live under the royal law. We are called to vertically love God with our heart, our mind, and our strength, and we're called to horizontally love God through loving those that are around us. So sometimes we can become very pious and think that all of our attention should be vertical, but rather there is something missing when the vertical profession of our faith doesn't make a horizontal difference. When the vertical raising of our hands in praise to him physically or even in our minds and our souls, when it doesn't make a horizontal difference, What James is saying is, is that maybe it is that you've never received the mercy of God. And if you've received the mercy of God, then you should live out of that mercy. So James is tying all of this together. Why are you a Christian? Because you've received his mercy and his grace. It isn't because of your skin color. It isn't because of your intellect. It isn't because of where you were born. It wasn't because of your wealth. But rather, we are believers out of the sheer, abundant mercy and grace of a saving God. We didn't earn that. We don't deserve that. We're not more qualified for that than someone who lives thousands of miles away or someone who looks different or talks different with a different accent, a different uh, gender. No, we have received his mercy. So in light of receiving his mercy, we are called to show grace and mercy to those that we come in contact with. This is the royal law. I remember a story that I heard uh, years ago, and it's a story that's hard to historically verify. It's one of these kind of apocryphal stories that get passed around at times. But it's a powerful story that I think illustrates this in a clear way. It's a story of 1975, small Midwestern town that has a liberal arts college. And it's a church that is adjacent to that college, but it's a little further away outside of town. So some of the progressiveness of the college really never reached that small rural congregation is in the middle of post-Woodstock, in the middle of the Jesus movement. If many of you maybe have lived through that, many of you know about the Jesus movement. It's a response to uh, what was going on within the counterculture of the late 50s, early 60s, late 60s. And there was this work of the Holy Spirit that was often a work that was capturing the hearts of those that were disillusioned by eat, drink, and be merry And go about your day. And the Holy Spirit began to draw the hearts. But there was this dissonance between the familiar trappings of church and the way that these largely college students, young adults, were reached in the midst of the Jesus movement. They looked different. They worshipped different. And so one day there was a clash of these cultures in the small church. It was a revival going on. It was a Monday night or a Tuesday night. About five minutes into the service, there were two college students that came in. You could tell immediately that they did not regularly attend that church. They, they were been a part of the hippies of the day. Long, flowing, blonde hair. Their hair was well, way too long for that church. 
They weren't dressed like anybody else in the church. I mean, they had these tattered, cut-off blue jeans, the stray material going everywhere. Instead of dressing properly in the decorum of the congregation, they had these uh, kind of stained, coffee-smelling, even a little bit cigarette-smelling T-shirts that they were wearing. They came in, and they were a little nervous. Those that initially saw them were a little bit nervous, so there was a miss of greeting in the vestibule area, and they walked into the congregation. Everybody was standing. Revival Tuesday night. There was somebody leading music, so they tried to find a seat. They couldn't find a seat, so they just made their way, made their way, made their way, and they came to, like, this area right here. In front of the front pews, I mean, nobody. Nobody sat in the first three pews. I mean, so they were really sitting really close there. And they raised their hands in worship, singing the old hymns of the faith that they sort of knew, but really didn't know. Hands raised, praising God, these two young men. Well, they were noticed in the congregation. People begin to whisper, who are they? Did somebody not talk to them? Are they trying to create a disturbance? So there was whispering going on. There were some greeters and ushers that got into the back, and they began to kind of plot and sort of a holy huddle. How do do we help these young men? I mean, they can't stand here. In the midst of them plotting in the back there, the minister got up, and he asked everybody to be seated. And instead of those men going back to the front pew there, these young college students, they just sat on the ground. Now, that really made some people a little nervous. They just sat right there on the ground. Do they not know any better than that? So the pressure of the moment was drawing upon the men that were plotting. What would they do? And there was one man. He was the kind of patriarch of the church. He was the one that when he stood up in a business meeting, he didn't say a lot, but what he said, everybody listened to. He was wise. He left the huddle. The men in that huddle said, well, if anybody can fix it, he can fix it. As he was walking down the aisle, as the minister was giving the announcements, they began to be murmuring back and forth. Well, thankfully, he's going to take care of it. They began to think to themselves just how he could tactfully come to these young men, escort them away from that front pew, be in such a scene, and get them maybe off to the side, maybe on the front pew. He would have some kind of way to rectify the situation. Everybody was with braided, bated breath, waiting to see what he would do. So he gets up there beside them, and these two young men just look up at him. And you know what he did? He sat down beside these two young men. One of them put out his hand, you know, real eager to shake his hand, and the other one hugged him. And the whole congregation sat there stunned and in silence as the patriarch of the church embraced this outsider. He didn't escort him out. He didn't get him to stand up and move. For the rest of that time that the minister was doing the announcements, they sat there together. For the rest of the music, they stood up and they worshipped together. And they worshipped, and there was a huge age difference, and they worshipped, and there was a huge personality difference. They worshipped, and there was a huge dress difference. But in that moment, that church sat silent because what? Mercy, triumph, judgment. And when mercy triumphs judgment, it silences 
it silences even the most hardened of sanctuaries. May it be so, Lord Jesus, in this preacher's life. May it be so, Lord Jesus, in our families. May it be so, Lord Jesus, in our church. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, a word that speaks to our hearts. May we follow you living under this passage of Scripture that calls us away from the temptations that all of us face within the cultural stream of our life that so often judges based upon first impressions and based upon external appearance. We make impressions. We make judgments. There's no denying that. All of us, all of us know what that feels like. But may we live under your passage that calls us to mercy and not judgment, that calls us to live under the royal law, a law that leads us vertically but leads us horizontally to embrace those that maybe are even different than us, look different, talk different, whatever it might be. May we hear your call, the call of this passage to live in light of it this week in our homes, in our church, everywhere that you would give us the opportunity to go. It's in your name we pray. The name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.